I want to um, get into my presentation um, by highlighting some problems that arise, in my view, problems that arise in Marxist readings of um, paramilitary formations and para-institutionality and paramilitaries in general. Um, like, uh, and not just Marxist views. Um, you have um, in the more liberal sphere like a an approach to understanding paramilitaries that's um, un, uh, like in my view unduly strategic in nature. Like um, it's designed more by concerns, obviously, of um, countering like uh, their growth. Uh, so you have like policy prescriptions and whatnot. So that in and in that my view that interferes with like a real understanding of what leads to their creation. Um, ironically, um, from the same people who will obsess about finding out what factors lead to their cr creation um, and will approach it like mathematically to figure out like when paramilitaries will emerge, like why do they emerge here or why do they emerge here. Like um, the Latin American uh, school has been a lot more useful in centering paramilitary formations to considerations of elite power. Um, particularly elite competition, as well as um, considerations of, like, shall we say, uh, popular movements, like um, checking popular movements, especially, um, like, uh, for example, the um, in Colombia, where um, paramilitaries are used to take out trade unionists or enforce certain corporate dictates or to guard. Um, measures of um, corporate extraction, such, such as mineral extraction. Um, this is all to say that um, in the Latin American school, and I'm, uh, I've read things related to El Salvador, Colombia, and uh, northern Mexico, Chiapas, so that can come up in the discussion if we like. Um, there's much more of a sensitivity to how um, uh, the requirements of the marketplace guide the um, formation and transformation of paramilitaries, as well as how elite considerations relative to other members of the elite and also relative to, um, for example, peasant uprisings. Peasant uprisings. Like, I don't like the word peasant, it sounds weird. Like, um, guide these paramilitaries as well. Um, my issue with that is that I still don't think it goes far enough. Um, and the reason I don't think it goes far enough is because of the fact that um, it's actually very, very difficult to get people to kill each other. Um, much more difficult than Marxists often appreciate. Like, um, it's not easy to rally a group of people together, usually men, um, and to form them in such a way that they are willing to like exact ridiculous amount of violence against other people. Even in a, even in a setting where that violence is hyper-normalized, as it is in, um, currently in Northwest Pakistan and in Afghanistan, it's actually not that easy to do. You need a philosophical underpinning to the violence. And it's in this like, um, kind of balancing of like, uh, economic concerns as well as like, the philosophical requirements for violence, which of course becomes necessary at certain historical points that uh, we can actually start to have, in my view, a properly Marxist understanding of how paramilitaries operate. Um, that 
take seriously their own like claims to higher wisdom. Um, and I say higher wisdom because of the specific groups that I'm talking about, all of which deal with Islamic politics in some way. Um, this isn't just false consciousness. Like, um, this is a real thing. Um, and you need to actually take seriously uh, claims to jihad and claims to Islamic legitimacy instead of just like, like kind of dismissing them as false consciousness or as many Islamic intellectuals do in Pakistan, defending your own uh, right to interpret um, Islamic scripture by saying that this other form is illegitimate. So that's what I wanted, that's the preamble. Like, um, before we like, um, get much more harder into the consideration of imperial governance and um, para-institutionality, I just want to quickly clarify the relationship between Islamic philosophy and the body. Um, this is something that's not actually second nature to um, Western audiences, even people who are familiar with philosophy. Uh, Marxism, of course, proceeds on an Aristotelian line in, in terms of philosophy. Uh, you have inherent truths in the world that are just what they are. Um, and you don't have like um, what is present in the Neoplatonist school and the school that proceeds from Plato, which is um, a simultaneous situation where you have a realm of ideal forms that like, you know, like this little matrix of like, um, yeah, like intelligible reality that like, lie, like, like lies just beyond. And then you have the sensible realm. Like uh, that, it, and the sensible realm, which is the one that like uh, Benzil and I are in, like um, contains imperfect expressions of these ideal forms. So Tanzil would be an imperfect expression of like a law school um, lecturer. Um, imperfect not meaning anything <laughs> other than... I don't think <laughs> yeah. So um, there would be like a perfect form somewhere that's imperfectly realized in Tanzil. Or man. Man's another idea of this, right? And essentially, like uh, without getting too into specifics, because so, I don't have seven weeks with you, like um, to like get into a course, the body is the center behind um, that, like, uh, is between comprehending this higher matrix as well as comprehending this lower realm of like imperfect and sensible expressions. Um, and you can look up Plotinus from the fourth century um, um, after death, like Common Era, um, as a like Greek philosopher in the in like seen in the Western tradition. I disagree, but seen in the Western tradition that um, talks about these forms. But more importantly, this, is, um, this evolves in an independent direction in Islamic philosophy. And I've worked backwards from uh, Islamically identified violence. It's not Islamic per se, but it's identified with Islam in the ways that it's discussed in media, to backwards in order to understand the philosophical underpinnings of these paramilitary groups. And this is what I have found out, that like um, you have the situation where the body is at the center of these two like um, realms. Maybe, maybe you can see them as like in different dimensions, like um, or in other readings they're not in different dimensions. But like um, 
you have the body as like a contemplation mechanism. Um, and essentially what I want you to do in order to understand what's going on is to flip the sense of contemplation into something more active. Like, uh, so it's not contemplation like uh, you're meditating on things. Rather, it's um, an active contemplation, which is to say that it's about discipline and sacrifice and forceful violence. And it's like um, these active things that you do that bridges the sensible and intelligible realms. And it's the manipulation of your own body and other people's bodies that allows you to access this higher realm of ideal forms and in turn ascent like a level of mystical wisdom. So mysticism meets killing people is essentially what I'm telling you. And this guides a lot of things in, uh, in the region that I'm talking about, whether it's colonial and, and military administration, or spiritual movements and hierarchies therein, or social movements, um, or even insurrectionists. You can, and here we'll say guerrilla groups, or like quote unquote insurgents. Um, and in addition to that, the paramilitary formations that cross over these different things. Uh, remember that like these aren't strict divisions, right? Actually, the Taliban is mu multiple things in this list at once. It can be, it's a social movement, it's a guerrilla group, um, in some areas, it's, an ins it's like properly an insurgent group that would like be seen as more terroristic because it's not operating with popular support necessarily. In other areas, it definitely is. Like, um, it's a complex phenomenon, right? So the question here is which groups and which neoplatonist philosophies overlap with the needs of imperial administration in this complex relational setting? of the frontier, and how material conditions affect those neoplatonist like, uh, conclusions that like, um, people make, right? So, like, um, just quickly some background into history leading to 1900. Like, uh, you have an increased centralization of local authority in uh, the Northwest frontier, like um, that, um, for example, with Maliks. Like, um, that has been happening in, in some form since the 1820s. So, like, um, you have a, a process by which the East India Company and later the British Raj, which forms in 1857, um, transforms local governance um, with financial dealings and institutional recognition of networks of patronage and powerful men. So um, this, start, this is actually a very gradual process that ends up getting more formalized in like, um, in like 1900 to 1904 with new laws and stuff like that. So um, the common um, popular understanding of British dealings in Afghanistan is that they lost, basically. Like um, two wars, um, the Anglo-Afghan Wars, 1838-1878, and the British lost. And the British did uh, suffer military defeats in both these wars, but I don't think they actually did. Uh, and the reason I don't think the British actually lost is because uh, the 1838 war, for example, uh, which was a military expedition, that, like, you know, like you had these like expeditions in the imperial period, like brave men just sort of wandering into the beyond, like these unknown places that people already knew about. Like, um, the 1838 um, exhibition, uh, expedition, rather, like um, spread a new form of governance because as the expedition went further into Afghanistan, those people made local agreements 
like uh, with local leaders, like uh, as they enter the country. So like even if that like even if that brigade was destroyed and it was like um, and it returned to India in famous humiliation. Much poetry has been written about this, right? Like, but like uh, even if that brigade was destroyed, the consequences were that these um, local agreements that the brigade made like permanently changed the character of local politics and um, set it in a certain direction that was reinforced by later moves. So you have an, a slightly later war in 1878, um, and that was a military occupation that ended again like with superficial defeat. But in reality, you, the, the dynasty that emerges from that, the um, Afghan ruling like royalty, like, um, is relatively pliant. Um, and Afghanistan serves as like a non-threatening border state that the British didn't quite conquer, but like isn't really that significant of a threat anymore. Like, uh, and it shares this with Nepal, like um, if you're familiar with like your northern South Asian politics. Like, um, and uh, Afghanistan is left with very little control over its own currency, trade relations, uh, trade regulations, uh, especially with India, uh, but also with Russia. Um, and also its foreign affairs, although you still, you, in this period, you have something called the Great Game, which is like competition with Russia that I'm sure you've all heard about. So by 1900, you have a situation where the Raj, is, the British Raj, the government in India, is increasingly powerful, and the um, imperial state itself is increasingly powerful as well. And that's made possible by new advances in technology, for example. Uh, like um, like the, the 19th century was a huge like um, um, explosion in things like uh, that you take for granted now, such as telegraphs um, and like um, all these different forms of instantaneous communication, um, as well as like other technologies that I'll get to in a minute. Um, and these new possibilities in technology combined with um, greater institutional strength. And that institutional strength is funded, um, if you're like um, good Marxists, you've of course read Lenin, like, um, and, you've read, and like, you may have read Hilferding and like, um, that school, right? So like, um, what we learn from that school is that this institutional strength is made possible partially by an immense increase in finance capital that like uh, funds the imperial state in new and interesting ways. And that, it's at that point that you start to see serious changes in how the borderland between Afghanistan and what was then British India, now Pakistan, was administered. So um, at the same time, like since the 1880s, you've had increased exploitation of British India, um, which is in line with something that everyone in Europe was doing, which was increasingly exploiting their uh, colonies. Um, for reasons that I'm sure I don't need to explain at the Historical Materialism Conference. Like, um, and you also have, as I said, um, a dynamic of inter-imperial competition with Russia through the Gary game. And this made certain geostrategic concerns like a land invasion or subversion, quote-unquote, uh, much more important. Although I would say that I think that a lot of the concerns about subversion in this period were mostly paranoia. Um, but like a lot of, but some of them weren't. Some of them were serious. Like, um, and at the same time, the borderland wasn't quite administered as something that was within British India. Like, um, it was administered as something of an extra legal space. 
So it was actually out, and in many ways, and, and this is still true, it was outside the remit of legal institutions and formal regulations. And this meant that it was um, both politically and economically underdeveloped in some ways relative to the rest of British India, but also that borderland administration relied on institutional frameworks that were partly formalized, um, but mostly relied on informal interactions. And these were informal interactions between powerful men, whether they were Maliks or British political officers or whatever, right? So you have like a situation where you have quote-unquote formal administration, but actually the character of that administration is taking place through these informal interactions. It's much more relational. Um, and as you can probably hear, there's a reliance on patriarchy, like in order to administer the area. Like um, so much so that I like um, I don't even I hesitate to even use words like administering sometimes because like um, it might give you the wrong idea. It might give you an idea of like court systems and stuff like that, which was definitely true elsewhere in British India. But like um, this was a unique space. The borderline was a unique space, and um, what you had when returning to the philosophy that I mentioned earlier, what you had was a situation where the patriarchal requirements of the system that was emerging and the body politics related to it were approached in such a way that um, they could facilitate this um, larger like um, ambition to keep the frontier under control. And partly, this reflects like um, the, the unique needs of capital in the region. Like um, I mentioned Lenin earlier, but part of the problem with the Leninist school is that sometimes it leads people to believe that everything that the capitalist does, uh, the capitalist class does, in an imperial setting, is necessarily for profit and profitability and profit making. Right? Um, the reality is that profitability is frequently suspended in a, in an imperial setting. Like. Um, and uh, you, can actually, you can actually speak of separate political and economic concerns from the view of the capitalist class. And um, there were very few economic concerns in northwest Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, because there was just nothing really there that was unique to there that could be exploited. Like, um, and this is still true. Um, uh, maybe in the, in the discussion we might touch on this. Like, uh, for example, the soil in, um, in Afghanistan like uh, less so in northwest Pakistan, but the soil is not good enough to grow a lot of crops. Um, it's like the, the hydrogen content is too high. Um, it's like it's too saline, I'm saying. Like, um, and uh, you have minerals underground, but like you don't have the infrastructure to extract them. Like, um, you don't necessarily have natural resources like timber. Nepal has that. But like, so it's like there's not really like a profitability motive here. Like, um, there is, however, a concern about political control, and that guides everything that's going on. So, like, um, you, yeah, so you have this um, reality of profitability being suspended. You also have a situation where there's a need for a quote unquote strategic flexibility. Um, and those of you who are uh, familiar with military policy, will know what I mean like almost immediately. Like uh, there's always this need for strategic flexibility from the view of like military 
administrators. They want the ability to engage in as much violence as possible in like, um, and also to do it in such a way that's not going to be traced back to them. Um, and they want the ability to do it very quickly, like is what, is what I mean by strategic flexibility in this context. So um, the reason there was a need for strategic flexibility is because you have the literal creation of a borderland for the first time. Like um, over the course of the 19th century, but particularly so in 1900. Like um, you have the establishment of a clear border, for example, called the Durand Line. Like um, in like I think 1903. Uh, no, I think it was 1893. But like uh, there were moves towards like kind of separating um, British India from Afghanistan prior to that. And this is an immensely violent process, right? Because this is previously an integrated geography, right? And uh, the British are trying to create a situation where it's not an integrated geography anymore. So you need a lot of violence in order to make that happen because you're forcing capital flight um, away from the um, borderland. You're, and you're forcing capital destruction. And like that, all that is easier in an informal framework because an informal framework allows you to just kill people for no reason. Um, in addition to other stuff that we're not going to cover here, just due, due to time. So, like, um, what happens is that you have the creation of these institutions that are at once formal and at once informal. So you have a new set of laws called the Frontier Crimes Regulation. Um, that uh, like uh, formalizes like um, patriarchal dictates and what the British read as quote unquote indigenous laws, uh, but also allowed quite a lot of uh, wiggle room. Like um, there's a lot of stuff here about tribal jergas taking responsibility for things, and it's a jerga in the British sense, right? So like women aren't included, like um, and. In addition to that, you have a lot of flexibility um, by the political officer and how they deal with uh, Jirga rulings. And then together, they sort of like reach agreements on like how the law is going to be administered and stuff like that. Again, relying on relationships between people. Uh, you also have, as I said, the Jiran line, like a formal border for the first time. And the British designed this border to divide tribes on both sides. And it's done that way on purpose to make sure that they're not able to unify as a um, cohesive political entity. And you also have groups like um, the Peshawar Rifles. These are like tribal levies. Like, um, and it's done this way to partially incorporate um, local warrior, like warriors, quote unquote, in the Brit British language, not mine. Like, um, into the imperial state, but it's also done to sort of form the basis for what would later be more explicit paramilitary governance. And um, you also have development initiatives that like irrigation canals and like roads, but again, the point here isn't actually to profit from any of these enterprises. Um, irrigation is explicitly done to control the local population. It's not done for profitability. and the. Um, archival records that I looked at are very clear about this. Like uh, the, the British colonial officers are very clear about this. They explicitly say in multiple places that they are not thinking about profit. They're thinking about control. Like, um, and the Islamic politics and philosophy of the period reflect these material in, uh, changes in, in administration. They reflect these um, new needs of the imperial um, 
state, but also like locally, they lean very heavily in a direction that reinforces the patriarchy needed for the system to function. But also, like um, in many ways, even in resistance, you have like um, new ideas about resistance that incorporate this logic. Like, um, so patriarchy ends up being more important, for example, for guerrilla groups than it was before. Like, um, and in addition to that, the body becomes like seen in this new way that is explicitly linked to state administration. That never really happened before. Like, again, like the philosophy reflects the material changes, right? So, like, your ideas about the body as this, like, kind of middle point between the higher realm and the lower realm is now linked to state governance in a way that it wasn't before. Um, by the way, like, um, you, there's a movement in, going on elsewhere in India right now under Mahatma Gandhi that's doing exactly the same thing. That's, why, that's the real reason why Gandhi's so reliant on hunger strikes, for example. You're starving your body, right? Um, and this is, like, as shortly before India becomes its own thing with its own bourgeois class. That's not a, that's not a coincidence at all. Neither is Gandhi's like um, prominence in Indian history as a, like um, and his body movements, right? So you have like a couple of different things going on, and you have Bachakan's people in in the northwest frontier that like try to pursue this. I'm not going to get into that. There's no time, like. Um, but essentially, you have institutions of control that are established and um, remain essentially unchanged into 1970. And in 1970 is when you have multiple changes in the local economy at the dawn of neoliberalism. There, are, there have been uh, processes of underdevelopment before this and processes of land fragmentation. There's too little land for excess sons, basically, because you have too many sons and you have to divide land between them. There's just, that's just not possible. So like some of those people have to leave. Like, so you have internal migration, you have external migration to places like Australia, UK, the Persian Gulf. And um, then what happens is that uh, there's the underdevelopment in the Pakistani state. Pakistan's just not really investing in the area. Like, um, but, but like, um, it's not really investing in this way that's actually solved by remittances that are like sent back home by people who travel abroad. Like, um, so the land fragmentation drives this migration and then those people leave and then they send money back home. And like, this is made possible by like, you know, like new changes in banking services and stuff like that. And it's done through the family structure. Again, the significance of patriarchy is clear here. And with that, you have like investment just through people working in other places that's just never really been present before. So profitability becomes a consideration for the first time. Rural competition like um, between families becomes a consideration for the first time. And also like um, a new way of absorbing a surplus population that's created in rural areas by the processes of land fragmentation that I just described. Like, um, so neoliberalism marked something like that you can really call paramilitarism because like it introduces new methods of linking global um, like uh, networks like uh, of people including people who are working elsewhere with the local population 
in a way that would absorb rural surplus populations within paramilitary networks because global imperial strategy gets involved. And it's done so in a way that also checks local socialistic gains. So in 1978, you have like a, a communist revolution in Afghanistan, not really, but we're going to just say it is. And you also have rapid organization, like in the 20 years prior to that, of small farmers, agricultural workers, and so on in the Northwest Frontier province to such a degree that it starts to really make local Maliks and landlords nervous. So what they do is noticing that these, these new networks are in place, they just sort of like um, make alliances in order to try to check the growth of local movements. Of course, it doesn't work at first, but it does start to work after this communist revolution in Afghanistan, like, uh, and the Soviet Union intervenes there. And like, uh, you know, and like, uh, this part of the story is actually well known that like the CIA like interacted with the Pakistani like uh, secret service and like also China and Saudi Arabia. China's less remembered, but China's also important in order to kind of um, trap the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and like, you know, Bin Laden and all that, right? So, but my, my like concern here is that these, uh, pr you had these patrimonial networks between people that I described earlier, and they were essentially armed in a more normative paramilitary net, uh, framework. So you had like um, networks between people that like um, funded like uh, these groups, but all, and at the same time that you had stuff like the CIA going and like uh, Saudi Arabia getting involved, um, and the I and the Pakistani ISI. And the neo-Platonist ideal forms were affected by all this. Like uh, you had new ideas about jihad and new ideas about godless communism of the Afghan Communist Party, but also of local groups. Um, and like um, that actually like didn't have a problem with Islam. Many of them were very religious Muslims, like and saw their Islamic commitments and their socialist commitments to be one and the same. Like. Um, and increasingly, you had an idea that it was okay to maim and attack civilians that would grow in subsequent decades. Firearms and drugs explode in the Northwest Frontier in this period, building on previous situations, especially in firearms, but in new ways, totally new ways. And the Pakistani army builds relational ties, again, not formal, with these transnational like um, networks in order to guide them in such a direction that they would back specific philosophies of jihad, Islamic utopianism, and Islamic politics. This is to check socialist variants on these themes, but also to work with a new conservative Pakistani consciousness that's funded by remittance networks and funded by networks of cultural exchange as well.